Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. Good morning. If you guys could grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, we can give one to you to make your own. We're going to be in Luke 15 again. So if you could open up your Bibles to Luke 15. I don't, does anybody know how long it's supposed to rain? I never really check it. Because I didn't know it was going to rain this morning. You guys all look confused like you didn't know either. Does it, so nobody knows. Okay. Jesse, our super plan to make it not pop didn't work. It's popping more. All right, if it pops again, then I'll need to use the handheld, wherever that thing is. Let's, we'll see if we can. So if there's any audio experts out there, we have some, but none of us can seem to figure it out. This works perfectly fine, but for some reason it pops. But we can't make it pop. It just pops when it wants to. So it's not the wires, it's not the box, so it's something electrical. So if you're bringing some kind of fancy phone that's making this happen, you need to turn it off. So, yeah, uh-huh. All right, so... Kim, I'm going to need that because this thing's just going to keep going. Thanks. All right. No more Backstreet Boys for me. Okay, so here's my question for you guys this morning. We've been going through um, the prodigal son and especially on this series about being unfair. But I have a question for you before we start. And the question is this. What is the cost of life? What is the cost of being alive? Have you ever thought through that? I don't mean just birth. I don't mean that your heart's beating. I mean like life. Like when Jesus says that he came so that we could have life and have it to the full, what is the cost for us to have that? What is the cost for our spouses to have that, for our children to have that, for our family to have that, for our friends, for our enemies? What is the cost for them to have life? Because there is a cost, and it's great. And the kind of life that I'm talking about is when something is created. And it's not necessarily just a human being, but when life is created in a human being. So here's an example of what I mean. So I did a a wedding. I do a lot of weddings. And I was doing a wedding recently, and this is a common occurrence. I'll be with a groom, and the moment's coming closer to when the wedding ceremony is going to start. And then there's this look that most of the time comes over their face, which is kind of a way to say, oh, crap, like this is going to happen. And, you know, you see the movies where they're always afraid of the groom taking off. But I always tell the groom, I said, if you're afraid right now, that is a very healthy thing because that means you understand what you're getting yourself into. If the guy's like, no, this is fantastic, this is great, I'm thinking you have no idea what's about to happen. You don't understand, you have these vows, you wrote them, and and I'm really big about their vows, and that's basically their promises, because that's what the whole ceremony is about. This is how you're going to promise to live. And when you look at those vows, it's all something that the person is going to give, not what they expect to receive. And so when you see this idea of marriage or relationship in general, there is a great cost. 
And if the groom or the bride isn't a little bit nervous or a little bit reluctant or hesitant, then they don't fully understand, and how could they, how could we understand the full cost of what it's going to mean to give your life away for another person? They should be reluctant. They should be hesitant. They should be at pause because this is a big decision. And if you understand a piece of that decision in relationships, it's going to be expensive. I was thinking through all of these different relationships because this parable that we've been looking at, and this will be the final Sunday that we look at it, this is not about a boy who's greedy, who decides to just take off and spend a bunch of money and makes bad decisions. This parable is about relationships. It's about the relationship of a father, our heavenly father, to sinners and the self-righteous. And in that relationship, for there to be life for sinners and the self-righteous, it's going to cost a lot from the father and from them. And we deal with this kind of stuff all the time. We, all, we have different situations in our lives where we are hesitant or reluctant because we know there's a great cost. We may not fully understand it, but we know that things are going to change dramatically. Whenever there's change, there's a cost. A couple of them that I thought of, um, when, you, when you're going to break up. If you've ever been in a relationship before, then you've probably broken up. In fact, when we see, when I used to do youth ministry, these high schoolers, it'd be such a big deal. And then I'd hear the other leaders tell them, oh, don't worry, you're going to go through this about six more times. Meaning that's probably not the person you're going to marry. Not always true. But why is it that when we're in these relationships, it is so hard to break up sometimes? I dated this one girl for way too long in college. And yet, the reason I didn't want to break up is because I felt like, well, I put so much into it already, like this investment. So when you put so much into it, it's this feeling like, well, I, I can't stop now. In fact, I'm looking at a friend of mine who the other day was, he had this business deal and uh, he had this property and it just, he couldn't get the permits and it just kept going. And it, it's that, that difficult decision of, do I just pull out now and just call it a loss? And that's sometimes what's involved in breaking up in relationships. Um, when you're choosing a college you're going to go to, let's say you, you graduate from high school and you have the decision to either go to college or jump into the workforce or start a business or whatever it is. But if you're going to choose one of those, there's a great cost. And it, you're hesitant because once you make that decision, it's going to determine a lot of the course of your life. At least you think so, Right? Like, am I going to go to that college? Because if I go to that college, that will shape my whole life. I remember arriving at college thinking, this is a big deal. Because all the people I meet now, these are the people that are going to be my best friends. We're going to do barbecues when we're old and fat. And we're going to do trips together. So I've got to choose wisely. And that's when you start praying. Because you realize you have no control. Um, another area where you can be at pause is your actual job. What job are you going to take? We, we know a lot of college students, a lot of our interns that are just graduating college. And you see this stress with them, like, oh, if, I don't know what job. And they think they've got to jump right into a full-time job. And then that's their career. And then, of course, I'm looking at some of you nodding. You're like, oh, sister, brother, you're going to have so many different jobs. You have no idea where you're going. But there's that sense of this is a big decision. This is going to cost a lot. 
it's going to shape things. You know what you're getting yourself into. So you, there's this little hesitation, some reluctance. You don't just jump right away. Being a parent, you can see the fear on a new parent's face. They're excited, but there's also that reality, wait, I'm not old enough to be a dad. I'm not smart enough to be a wife, I mean a, a, a mom. I'm, I don't have all of these pieces together. I can't do this. I'm not ready for this. I know what it's going to cost. Children don't understand that because they're children. That's how you know you go from being a child to an adult. When you start to understand the cost of your decisions. Moving. That's another big one. It's, it's, it's a big change in life, and it's going to cost a lot because if you decide to move from one place to another, you've got to find new relationships. What about your old relationships? It's a new life. New life is scary, and that's why we hesitate. In this parable that we're going to look at, we're going to see that the father, there's great cost involved. And if there's anything that you see this morning, I want you to see the cost because these Pharisees, as we've talked about, these Pharisees and these scribes are watching Jesus hanging out with all of these people that haven't made good decisions in their lives. And they look at this and they're like, this isn't right. Remember, this parable is about relationships, right? So these Pharisees are looking at Jesus and seeing him having a relationship with these others. And in their minds, that's not the way life works. And so Jesus shares this parable to give direction, to give teaching on how God is and how God loves both the sinners and the self-righteous because the Pharisees and the scribes are the self-righteous. So as we look at this, though, we need to understand where it came from so that we can know where it's going. Another thing we need to do as I jump in here is you're going to need to put on your Middle Eastern eyes. I'm pretty sure there's very few Middle Easterners here, so I'm going to try to help you to understand, as I've been trying to understand, how how this passage is looked at at the time of Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, not our eyes, because there's so much packed in here that the audience that was there would recognize. So open up if you could. Um, we will start here. Oh, it's glasses time for sure. We're going to start in verse 11. So Jesus continued, start, shared this parable to the Pharisees, to the self-righteous, and to the sinners, those who had made poor choices, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided his property between them. You're like, okay, all right, sure. He wanted his inheritance early. No, 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 no. Because the audience that would hear Jesus say this would be gasping at this point. What? There is nowhere in literature, nowhere in Middle Eastern literature where this was ever asked or ever given. Not just because of the father, but because of what the son is asking for. Everything, all of their finances, all of, their, all of his inheritance is wrapped up in land. You don't sell land. This son is asking something from the father that is not allowed. In fact, in Leviticus, it says this. The land must not be sold permanently. So not only is the son not supposed to sell it, or his brother, but the father's not supposed to. They are tied to the land. The land is supposed to be kept in perpetuity, which means 
forever. And yet, the father, it says, divided his property between them. So, with the land, if he were, which he's not supposed to, but if he were to give it to his son and say, you know what, this is yours now. They wouldn't sell the land. Not only would they not sell the land, but by law, the father is supposed to survive on that because he's going to get old, 50, 60, 70, 80. He can't work the land, but he needs to live off the land. And so it's understood that the family rules are that the boys will run the land and they will provide for him. So he gets to keep the land. So by him selling the land, which is what it means by him dividing it up, he is selling his life. The father is selling his life away for this son, this immature son. I'm looking at this, if I'm looking at it with Middle Eastern eyes, and goes, what is wrong with his father? This is some teenage punk, and he's just giving it all away. He's giving away his future, the father's future, by doing this. There's another thing that we miss here. As the son, the younger son is asking this, it says that he divided it between them. Because he said there were two sons, right? So we know that the older brother is mentioned here. So the older brother is mentioned, and it says that he gets some of his property now. It is understood that when there's a break in a relationship, and there's a break in a relationship here, right? Because the son is saying, look, you, dad, you're better off to me just dead. And I really don't want to wait for you to pass away. You serve no purpose to me right now other than that. So I just want my stuff now because I really don't want to wait till you die. I want to get started on my life now. <sighs> Forget about the land. What about the father's heart to hear that, to see that? So because of that break in relationship, it's understood that the one that's closest to the two, when there's a break in relationship, needs to step in. Do we do that? It's not really one of our common laws, but it should be, right? So let's say Bud is really ticked off with Colin. Someone needs to step into that situation. So who's close to Colin and close to Bud that could step in there? Should be me maybe, right? Because I don't even know if you two guys know each other. Bud, Colin, Colin, Bud. But let's say they get in this big fight. Someone needs to step in. But what we do is we kind of step back. Ooh, ooh, hey, ooh. Hope you guys figure this out because I don't want to jump into that situation it is understood in this culture, no, 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 you don't let those things just simmer. The person that's closest needs to step in. And yet we hear complete silence from the older brother. He doesn't step in. He just lets this go. So not only is the father separated from his younger son, he's really separated also from his older son. Because that son, by his silence, is refusing to take on his role. Another thing that's happening here that's going to break the father's heart is that the younger son is going to take off with his money from the land and leave. You know that passage where it said it's beautiful when brothers dwell together? That passage is actually part of the law. What parent doesn't want to see their children get along with each other, live together, care for each other, grow up together? It breaks a parent's heart to see kids not getting along and not being in relationship. So not only does he not have a relationship with his younger son now, his older son is inside, hey, I'm out. I don't even want to get involved in this. And hey, thank you for my land, by the way. Not only does he not have that, but now he gets to see that neither of the two sons are going to have a relationship with each other. They're not going to dwell together. 
just hear this and we see, oh, he wants his money, he wants to get away. But there's so much more happening here. So much more happening to the father. Why in the world would the father agree to any of this? Look at all that's happening. I mean, if he just didn't agree, if he just did what was expected and beat his son, because that's what was expected in that culture for any son to be so disrespectful, they need to be taught. You need to help them grow up. So what do you do? Duh, beat him up. That's what they would do. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because as it says here, it says that the son is really asking for his bios, B-I-O-S. And you know where that comes from. That's life, biology, bio. This father is letting his life be ripped apart. And the reason he does it is because he sees that his son is already lost. His son is home, but his son is dead. He sees that his son is living geographically in the house, but he's lost. And what matters to the father is not property, not the cattle, not his own security, but his children. Remember, Jesus is trying to share this parable. He's trying to share this story to others so they will understand how God is and how we need to be to each other. He lets this all happen for the hope, not even the promise, but the hope that his son, who is completely lost and completely dead, maybe will wake up. That is a huge step, but that is a step that comes out of love. So we see the son, and as we've shared before, and it's right there for you, but I don't want to take you through every verse right now. Um, the son goes away. He gets into wild living, and a famine hits. So the economy tanks. So all the money he had is now gone. Uh, we don't know if it's strictly from the famine, but it must be involved. Otherwise, why mention the famine? But it's also poor financial planning. And so he spends it all, and it gets so bad that he has to hire himself out to somebody else. So he hires himself out to care for these pigs. And it says that there were these pods. And what those pods are really like caribs. Um, they're all over the Middle East. We have some here. But when a pig eats them, it, they're kind of gnawing on them. It's not really food. But you as a human being can't live off of these caribs, off of these pods. And so this boy is in such destitution that he's trying to live off of these pods, but he can't. And so he says, I might as well just hire my. I, I, why am I hired out to this guy? I'm not even making it. I can't live. And so he makes a decision to go back home. But I want you to notice something. He still doesn't want to let go of his life because he comes up with a plan. With Middle Eastern eyes, you know that repentance or a change of life, if you're going to come back and make an apology and say you're going to do different, you've got to make some changes beforehand because that's how the Middle Easterns would look at it. So the, the rabbinic approach to repentance of, of coming back home, you better come with something. And so as he looks at this, he's not really thinking about the relationship. We are. But he took his father's money that his father was supposed to live off of, took it, spent it, wasted it, and now he's going to come back home. So what does he offer? He's working through his speech here, right? And in his speech, he says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set out. I'll go back to my father. 
And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, if he's one of his hired servants, he's going to make some money. And he has the opportunity, however far-fetched it really is, to then pay back his father. So he's got a plan. He still wants to be in control here. In fact, he's got a plan of what he's telling his father to do. He's still bossing his father around. He really hasn't gotten to this point of realizing where he's at. And we know that because of the second half here. But I'll get to that in a second. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He saw him a long way off because he'd been looking. Every day or however many times a day, hoping that by him ripping his life apart that his son would learn. That his son would learn who he really is, how life really works, that money's not that important, and that when it is gone, because that's probably his assumption, right? Can you imagine if you gave all of your inheritance to a teenager? How's that going to go? So he's expecting him to come back in pretty bad shape if he even comes back, but it's worth it. All of it is worth it for the chance that his son would really be alive. Not just living, but alive. And his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, as beautiful as that picture is, if you have your Middle Eastern eyes on, you realize that the father also had to run to put his arms around him to protect his son. Because when he left, you'll notice that in the beginning of the parable, it says that he got his stuff and he left right away, which means he got the land, sold it right away, probably on pennies on the dollar, so he could get out of there because he had ostracized himself, not only from his father, not only from his brother, but from the whole village, from the whole community. He is separate. And so when they see him coming from a long ways off, if they, the community, the village gets to him first, it ain't going to be good for him. And so the father... I mean, you'd think he'd given up enough by now, right? But he gives up his own pride, picks up his robe, which old men never do, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, and he runs pulling up his skirt and sprinting to protect his son. Yes, he came to him because he was glad to see him. Yes, he loves him. Yes, he can't wait to put his arm around him. Yes, there's a chance that his son is now alive, but he also needs to physically keep him alive. And so at that risk, he embarrasses himself even more cost to the father by running to him and wrapping his arms around him. Now, the son had a whole speech planned. He was in control of the situation. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you, but here's my plan. Why don't you make me one of your hired servants? And we both know that I'll make a little bit of money, and then I'll be able to pay you back. So I'll be contributing even though I took all your money and blew it. I, I got this, Dad. I got this. He's still not humble. But at the sight of his dad running, at the cost of what he is doing for this son that did all of that to him, he changes his approach. Let's go back now. We saw what he originally planned. Now let's see what actually happens when he gets there. He had a plan before he came, but it changes. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops right there. He doesn't offer to become a hired servant. Does that mean he's like, whew, I made it. Now I don't even have to work. No. He is overwhelmed by the cost, the sacrifice that his father has made for him. And I want you to notice something, too. In this whole parable, there is never hesitation from the father. There wasn't hesitation to sell it. He already knew his son was a mess. He would probably thought through every possibility. So when that was asked, he didn't hesitate. When his son is coming from a long distance off, he doesn't go, mm, what should I do here? Should I let him come? He sprints to him to let him know he is loved, but also to let the community know he's mine. He is mine. I accept him. I wrap my arms around him, so now you have to. You don't have to feel it, but he is protected by me. How can the son continue his plan? Now, I'm going to do this short because I know this is going to feel like um, English class, but it also may feel like the kind of English class that you don't like. So I'm going to make it quick, but I think it's really important. Because when you look at this parable, you don't even realize the significance of how it's written. It's written in a literary style. It's written in a certain way. Um, it's written, um, Kenneth Bailey was the one, I would never know this, but I was reading Kenneth Bailey, and he said that it's written as a uh, parabolic parallelism poem. Yeah, you like that, don't you? What that means is, is that there's pieces, and they're parallel, which means they're going to be opposite. So it starts by saying a son is lost, but it ends by saying a son is found. The opposite, right? And then the second half, or second part, goods wasted. But, number two, the goods, the cow, the shoes, the ring, are used in joyful celebration. The important thing here, though, is to see what's in the middle. Because in the middle is the point of the parable. In the middle is the core. And in the middle of this parable, which Jesus has constructed, it says a change of mind. So the boy came to himself. He said, if I stay here, I'm going to die. And then the opposite of that is an initial repentance. Make me a servant. I'll pay it back. The son has to go through a change. We've talked about this before. As Tim Keller said, everybody's messed up. The older brother, the younger brother, that represents humanity. We're all a hot mess. But we are all loved. Not just the younger son, but the older son. So as the Pharisees are asking this question, Jesus is saying, look, God is passionate about you as well. Not just these tax collectors and these prostitutes and the people that made really, really poor decisions. But you, with your self-righteousness, God loves you also. And at great cost, I'm going to die for you. Open up your eyes to the way things are. Because everyone is lost. Everyone is loved, but everyone must change. The younger son initially doesn't even want to change. He's reluctant to it, so he comes with his plan. We need to understand that this is normal. When you look at how the parable ends, right, we have the older son, and he's outside, and the dad comes to him. The dad comes to the outsider. Even though the sons live there, he's still an outsider, and the dad comes to him and says, come on in. Come on in. We don't know if the older son does or doesn't. It's left as a cliffhanger, right? 
And so in that, we can see the reluctance. We can feel the reluctance. We see it in the younger son. We don't see the older son just sprint in, right? The hired servants come and say, hey, your dad's throwing a party because your brother's back. That enough should have been enough. Well, if my dad's throwing the party, that means he's giving him the thumbs up. I need to obey my father out of love, out of relationship, trying to please him. Even though I really don't like my brother, I'm going to come and participate because I love my dad. But he doesn't. We see this reluctance to change. We see this hesitation because the change is very costly. It is very expensive to change. As we talked about earlier with relationships and marriage and buying a house and relationships are expensive. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. But for that ultimate relationship, that relationship with a father, the one that both sons have offered to them, I don't want us to ever be surprised at what it costs to come to him. We call ourselves a church for people and go to church. That word that you need to hold on to is the word for, which means we are passionate about people getting that opportunity to sit with God, to have that opportunity to go through this process of change. They're already loved. We just want them to have that full life, that life that costs God so much. We want them to have that life. But in this process, there's going to be change. It's expensive. And when we are reaching out to friends and family and giving them that opportunity, don't ever be surprised if they're reluctant. That is a normal response. Because it's going to cost a lot. When Jesus calls someone, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he's calling the people to come and die. Because when we are with God, there is that element of us giving up our old life, which is expensive. There's um, a couple examples I want to give you. You could not find two more different people than these two people. One is C.S. Lewis, and the other is Anne Lamott. Please tell me someone here knows who Anne Lamott is. Oh, it swarms my heart. Of course, come on, it does. If you haven't read her stuff, you need to read it. But I want to start with C.S. Lewis first, because C.S. Lewis, when he came to Christ, wasn't like, yay, this is awesome. My personal experience is those that understand what they're getting themselves into when they follow Christ, it's not like, yeah, this is awesome. It's more like, okay, fine. And this is what C.S. Lewis has to say about his conversion experience. He said he came unwillingly to this new life. Um, You have to understand something about C.S. Lewis if you don't know anything about him. He's brilliant. He's English. He's a professor. He's a scholar. He's also dead, but as you read this, or as I read this and you hear it, his writing is much different than ours. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, In the Trinity term of 1929, he was a professor, remember, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, 
But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compel and trare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. C.S. Lewis came reluctantly because he knew what he was getting himself into. But he just couldn't fight the truth any longer. That God was God and he needed him. Anne Lamott had a very similar approach but a very different life. C.S. Lewis was proper. Anne Lamott was anything but. And in her words... Um, she'd already written three books, she was barely making it, and she got pregnant. She got pregnant on a one-night stand with some guy that she really didn't want to have a relationship with. She said she had no money, so she had her friend help her, um, and she went and got an abortion. And then that week, because of the guilt and the shame and the pain, she began to drink and take drugs and drink and take drugs until she was in a complete stupor. And it got so bad that she actually thought she was going to die because she was still bleeding, but she didn't want to go back to the hospital because she felt so ashamed. She didn't want to go into the hospital and expose what she had done and have to deal with the doctor's responses to her. So she said that um, she, she lived in a, uh, in a houseboat. <laughs> and she said uh, as she was laying there, She'd become sober at this point because she ran out of money for the alcohol and the drugs. She says, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. And I just assumed it was my father whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. She said the feeling was so strong that she actually turned on the lights because she thought, who's here? But after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. So I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. That's how she's talking to God. But God never left. She even said she squinched her eyes shut. Even though she couldn't see him, she thought if she squinched her eyes, maybe he'd just disappear. So the experience spooked her real bad. She thought it was just an apparition born of fear, self-loathing, booze, loss of blood. But she said everywhere she went, and she describes God, because she's a writer, she described God like a cat. You know that cat that just keeps following you around? So she described God as a cat wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my houseboat door when I entered or left. She literally would close the door thinking she's going to keep God out. So one, le one week later, she went to church. Uh, she said she was so hung over that she couldn't stand up for the song, so she just stayed seated. 
She heard the sermon. She thought it was ridiculous. But the last song, the song, was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time, and I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid, and I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction, and I raced home and felt the little cat running along at my heels, and I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat, and I stood there a minute. And then I hung my head and said, I won't give you the full verbiage, because she's very raw, but she says, F it, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. And she says this, so this was my beautiful moment of conversion. Doesn't sound like someone that's super excited, does it? But it's someone that understood the cost involved. It shouldn't surprise us that in our walk with God, that we may be reluctant, not only to begin that relationship, but to trust him along the way. Because we're so invested in what we're doing, or we feel like we need more information, or we're, we're paralyzed by analysis. Wait, let me think of it from this angle. This angle, instead of just trusting the Father. But I want to ask us to do this this morning. I want us to make a decision. Because in a healthy, giving relationship, there's a commitment to be like the Father. Not only with Him, to love Him, right? The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means to sacrifice. That means to give your life. Um, there's a passage that I want us to close with from Jesus, of course. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. In our relationship with him, we need to trust him. In our relationship in marriages, you do understand that you are called to give your life away for them. It's not about what you get from them, it's what you give. In parenting, it's about giving your life to your kids, not expecting them to reward you with a great relationship. With people at church, in the body of Christ, it's not about what they give to you, it's about you giving to them. I know this doesn't seem fair at all, does it? But that's the way it works. God is unfair. He was unfair to us, and he wants us to be unfair to others, meaning give to others not what they've earned, but to give because as we have been loved, so we must love one another. It's by doing that that we find our life. It's by giving our life away that we understand what real life is. This younger son, when he comes home, has the opportunity to start a real life, to be alive. And Jesus, is, he's with all of these lost people. They're not really lost anymore because they're coming and turning to God. The Pharisees don't get that, but that's the way this works. And I'll bet you that those people are reluctant. They're like, it's a big deal because I'm kind of making good money here. Or, hey, I've got things figured out. If I give up this life, if I start to trust this Jesus, then everything's going to change. He is going to mess my life up. Yeah, 
but that's what's going to bring you life. So we call this parable the prodigal, story of the prodigal son. Nowhere in that passage does it say the word prodigal. And in fact, if we look at the word prodigal, it means to be recklessly extravagant or having spent everything. So you know why people would refer to the son that way, right? Because he was reckless and he spent everything. But I want you to think of it this way. Because the one that we're modeling ourselves after, the way life is supposed to be lived, the way we're supposed to treat all of our relationships is like the father. Because he is the prodigal father. The one who was reckless, recklessly extravagant. He spent everything. He ripped his whole life apart. His finances, his security, his future, his health, all out of love for his son. All out of his love for us. That is our model. That's what sets us free. As I started sharing this story with Tyler again this morning, I just started crying. <laughs> because it is so beautiful for a son, for a daughter to be able to look at the father and go, you did all that for me? You can't be the same after that. You just can't be the same. Can you please join me in prayer? I'm going to invite the, the worship team up. And they're going to lead us. And all of our prayers and all of our songs, it'll never be enough. So if you're able, could you stand with me? Father, we surrender to you, Lord, as much as we know how. When it comes to following you, either for the first time or through life, it's, it's hard and we just want to pause and we want to hesitate. Lord, give us the faith needed to keep walking. Lord, as we have broken relationships around us or um, relationships where we're not getting what we expect, remind us of you, Father. Set us free to live life the way that you created us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Um, Bog mentioned uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who happens to be a, a hero of mine in the faith. Um, he was a theologian and a pastor in the time of Nazi Germany. And he's the one that coined the phrase, uh, grace is free, but is not cheap. Now, you can get uh, soda at uh, Costco and you can go drink. Uh, it's free. You can go drink as much as you want until you get bloated and die. But um, grace is also free, and you can go drink of it as much as you want. But it's not cheap. It costs God greatly. The Father gave his only son. The son suffered and gave his life. In this story, the prodigal son, it seems like he didn't grasp or realize the value uh, of grace, the cost of grace. And so he abused it and took it for granted. And he thought finally that it ran out, only to discover that grace never ends. And where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. The other son, the righteous son, he didn't realize or value that grace is free. And that you give grace away. He thought that you earn it and you keep it for yourself. And Dietrich's time, he realized 
the reality that he had received grace freely from God. He realized how much it cost God, and he gave it away at the risk of his own life. The state church at that time yielded to Hitler, was adopting the anti-Semitic views at the time. Uh, Bonhoeffer, he could have, he could have stayed it, played it safe, gone along with the crowd, kept his position, but instead he called out the church on their errors of their thinking. And he even got involved, whether you agree or disagree with his actions, he even got involved in a conspiracy to kill Hitler. And it cost him dearly. He was found out, he was thrown in a concentration camp among those people that he was trying to free. And uh, he was executed shortly before the end of the war. He was only 39 when that happened. And I think to myself, because I love the books that he's written, you know, how many more books are unwritten? How many more books could he have written? And yet his actions to me speak volumes more than any library could say. And um, it challenges us in the same way to remember these three things, that uh, grace is free and it's boundless, it's never ending, but it costs God greatly, so we need to handle it with care. And finally, grace is not to be kept to ourselves, it's to be given away, even at the cost of our own lives. Heavenly Father, I just uh, come to you now humbly, receiving the grace that you've offered to us, um, knowing that we could never exhaust your grace, no matter how far we stray. Lord, we're so grateful and thankful for your grace. Lord, help us to always humbly recognize the cost that is involved, that you sent your son, that he willingly died and suffered for our sins so that we may live. So, Lord, I just pray that not only would we receive that grace today in every area of our life where we need it, but you would cause us to be dispensers of that grace, to go out in the world, to, to show that grace to others, uh, Lord, no matter what the cost of our own lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.